And welcome to episode 88 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today, we try to remember when weddings were a thing as we review the new Netflix rom-com, Love, Wedding, Repeat. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing pretty well. It's funny that you mentioned that uh, we try to remember when weddings were a thing, because I was invited to a wedding that was supposed to be Memorial Day weekend-ish, not exactly that weekend, but around then. And uh, needless to say, that has been postponed. So appropriate comment made by you there. We'll see if the new wedding date for that uh, particular couple holds up. It's in August, but I still think we might be a little bit optimistic. But we'll see. I'm, I'm overall doing pretty well. Week five of quarantine. Uh, I have survived it. I have sunk to, I don't know, new lows. Really, I think risen to new heights by uh, building a, t- a Lego set this weekend with my girlfriend and, and recently discovered that uh, Marble Olympics, the Marble Olympics is a thing. And got really into that last night and watched several hours of Marble Olympics uh, for the past <laughs> wow. few years. And, and honestly, very exciting stuff. Uh, as a as the sports fan, like you and I, we know how to become uh, really deeply invested in things pretty quickly when we pick our teams. And I picked my team from the beginning and rooted for them. Uh, watched about the first half of the 2019 Marble Olympics, and it, honestly, it's it's pretty satisfying uh, given the current state of sports in the, in the world. Yeah, no, it, it would definitely be nice to have anything like that. I mean, I, I guess I guess there is something like that with this marble racing. But yeah, I can't I can't judge too hard. I was definitely way into extreme dodgeball back in the day um, when that was a thing on, hey, on the Game Show Network. So. Yeah, that was great as well. I loved that show back in the day. Yeah, that was that was some quality stuff. So yeah, we we do what we can to to get by. I've been playing some some games on my original Xbox that I have um, here at the house, which has been an interesting experience. Some games have have not really aged well, but uh, you know, ha- having as much of a good time with that as can be. And yeah, I, I'm supposed to go to two weddings in October, but I don't know whether either of them is going to be happening now. Um, we will see. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, but, you know, this thing, again, we keep saying this, it's it's changing by the day and by the week. So at least one university, I think, one major university has already said they're not going to have um, classes in the fall at all. Like they've already wow. made that call, which is kind of surprising. Not Liberty but- University, I bet. No, definitely, definitely not Liberty. But um, but yeah, and I mean, I, I've heard my, my friend was talking about how his girlfriend's dad was a doctor and that he was saying that he doesn't see right now how there's any way that like schools will be able to resume in-person classes by the fall. So we really we really don't know when when all of this is going to be over. But uh, when it is, I will definitely enjoy going to those those couple of weddings. But Scott, regardless, uh, before we get cold feet, I think it's time to dive into our review of Love Wedding Repeat. Uh, the latest from writer-director Dean Craig, Love Wedding Repeat, stars Sam Claflin as Jack, a British man trying to make sure his sister Haley, played by Eleanor Tomlinson, has the best wedding day she can possibly have at her lavish Italian ceremony. 
Unfortunately, because this is a movie, that task won't necessarily be simple, and it involves controlling uncouth wedding guests, Sydney and Rebecca, played by Tim Key and Ashling B, avoiding his own ex, Amanda, played by Frida Pinto, making sure Haley's old flame, played by Jack Farthing, doesn't spoil the ceremony, and keeping his best friend and the maid of honor, Brian, played by Joel Fry, from screwing up his big speech. Oh, and if there's time, Jack would also love to romance Olivia Munn as American journalist Dina, a woman who he nearly had a relationship with three years earlier. But as the title suggests, there's a little more, though perhaps not that much more, to the structure of this film than meets the eye. But I'll stop there. Scott, is Love Wedding Repeat a successful rom-com marriage with Netflix in the vein of Set It Up or Always Be My Maybe? Or do you see reason why these two should not be wed? Yeah, I mean... I hesitate to say that this is a bad movie because I recognize there are some uh, positive elements to it and some things that just aren't for me. But at the same time, I don't know if this movie is really for me. I mean, I, I laughed at, at several points throughout the film, largely because the type of humor, which we'll get to in a second, just makes you super uncomfortable because it is cringe with intention. Uh, a lot of the times I, I, you know, we watch movies, not necessarily for the podcast, but I watch movies where you get these sort of cringy moments and rom-coms, et cetera, that aren't necessarily intentional. It's just part of the, maybe the the tough structure of the dialogue that's written. Maybe it's not the most polished dialogue at all. It something comes off as a little bit cringy because it feels like it needs to be in there because it's a rom-com trope that's not intending to be cringy. Whereas this movie is just like, you know what? We're going to be cringy and we're going to be cringy a lot. And we're going to make you as uncomfortable as you possibly can with how cringy it is. And the parts of the movie that I thought were the funniest were not the parts of the movie where uh, the movie was trying to make me feel this sort of awkward cringe. I mean, from the first five minutes of the film, I texted you five minutes in the film. I'm like, I, I don't even know how I'm going to get through this movie because what's happening, uh, what I'm watching on screen is just like, it's so hard to watch because it's so cringy and you can tell it's being intentional about that. And I'll give people credit in this film. They, they play the cringe parts pretty well, <laughs> for, for better or for worse. I mean, uh, if the goal was to make people cringe, they did it. Uh, Sam Claflin, who I, I just I just really wish he could rewind time and just stick with that Finnick O'Dare role and not uh, do any other movies that he's done since then, because I haven't been particularly impressed with him in Adrift or uh, this movie, although this movie in particular might be more just the, the type of movie that it is that there wasn't really much to impress me with. Uh, Olivia Munn, always a pleasure to see her on screen. Uh, ironically, I think her character Dina reminds me uh, not, uh, sorry, reminds me quite a bit of uh, Sloane Sabbath from the newsroom, who's also kind of like an awkward uh, journalist uh, uh, sort, but a, a different flavor of, of awkward maybe, but uh, it reminded me a lot of that character. So I kind of appreciated that because, I mean, you you know, Scott, the newsroom, one of my favorite shows uh, up there, of course, written by Aaron Sorkin, and uh, I'm a sucker for pretty much anything that he does. Further down the cast list, it's just like, I don't really know. I mean, I'm glad they didn't really get any big names for this movie because, well, one, you could understand why they couldn't get big names for this movie. But two, just like it'd be even weirder. They were like really famous people in this film. I did text you early on saying all this movie needs is like Keanu uh, being someone's like date to this wedding. And, and about 30 minutes into the film, I was like, mm, maybe not. Maybe Keanu should stay away from this one yeah. as much as his cameo worked and always be my maybe for me. I, I don't know if it would have worked as well uh, in this one. I don't really know how to correctly measure what is a what, what's a good comedy, like the number of laughs that it, that it gives you. I got probably a handful of laughs that were genuine laughs out of this film. Again, not because of the content, the cringe content that it was kind of is at the core of this film, 
But I did laugh a few times. If you want something different, something definitely a, a lot more lighthearted, something to just completely turn your brain off during, this might be a good option if you're, you know, doing something, I don't know, cooking dinner or, or doing something else and you want something on in the background. Like this, this might be worth putting on. But if, if you're looking for something, uh, you know, high quality filmmaking with a, you know, a real cutting story that explores interesting themes, I think you might want to steer clear of Love, Wedding, Repeat. I'm not sure you're going to get much satisfaction out of that. Yeah, yeah. What a ringing endorsement to say this is a great movie to put on when you're doing something that requires more of your attention than watching a movie would. But, but a lot um, of people watch Netflix. No, like absolutely. That, no, I, I don't works. disagree with with that assessment. I just think that that says a lot about the quality of the film. Perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, Scott. I, I don't hesitate to say that this is a bad movie. It it is. Um, and you are correct in saying that you know some of that, some of the humor here is is by intention. Um, that. Obviously, the movie, the, the the concept, at least for the first two thirds of the movie, is what if just you had this wedding and just every single thing that could possibly go wrong goes wrong. It's Murphy's Law, and like, everyone's dialed up to eleven. Yeah. Um, and like, I just think you can only go so far with that, right? Like, after a certain point, exhaustion just starts to set in. Yeah. Of just the you know things just spiraling worse and worse out of control, and every character like you know, is set up as having a particular desire or whatever in the, at the start of this movie. And it's just like, they spectacularly fail at, at getting to that desire. And again, in the most spectacular way, I'm like, none of these people are bad people. So it's just like, should I be enjoying watching this? Like, you know, I, I, this is kind of masochistic almost just to, to take, take pleasure, or at least take some humor from the, you know, the, awful pain and situations that these characters find themselves in for again for a large part of the movie and so i i wasn't i was cringing but not in an appreciative way and i i think that if there are any jokes that work uh, to, to borrow a phrase from from roger moore the the film critic from the orlando sentinel they threatened to die of loneliness here if there are any jokes that work because i think most of them fell very flat and yeah, it, it, it is just kind of that that cringeworthy humor that that starts to wear on you. The performances are fine, I guess, but but then the movie I think does try to do something a little different with its its structure, and I just didn't really see the purpose uh, to doing that because I think there was it, I think it was kind of set up as like oh it was going to be something even more inventive than it is right with, with the structure that maybe there was going to be all sorts of different things going on with the timelines. And there's really not, there's, 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 there's one place in the movie where we have like a different, where we have a shift in the timelines. Um, yeah. And it's, and, and the whole idea of, and the concept of the film, the I mean, we're going to talk more about it in a second, probably, but the whole structure is set up as this, like, just, just what, what would be possible if different things happened? Like what would be the end? How would the end result be different? It's not like something like live, die, repeat, which is a, an action, you know, a Tom Cruise, Emily Blunt action thrillers film from, I don't remember what year it was, a few a few years ago that was really cool, really inventive. Obviously not the first movie ever to, to do sort of this repetitive structure a la Groundhog Day, et cetera. But it did it in a really great way and a really fun way. And, and that is critical to the plot, right? Like the whole structure there is, you know, you get caught in this time loop and you have to break free from it. Whereas this one, it's just like some weird thought exercise that they decided to like inject into the film for no reason whatsoever. You're like... Cool. Why? Why did I need to see the different outcomes? It doesn't mean anything. I mean, it do anything. Yeah, it, it is like 
yeah, we know that we've been showing you just a bunch of miserable stuff happening for like about an hour now. So we're going to give you a little nice little cherry on top of the end, right? To, to make you feel a little better about yourself than, yeah. than you probably have been feeling after watching this movie. Because, you know, the, the first hour of this movie makes you think, I if you've never been married, I never want to do that. Why would I ever do this? Um, because there's just, again, so, so many bad situations. And yeah, I, I think this movie definitely failed. This it, to, to go back to your your point there, I think six laughs is what Mark Kermode always says, I think mm -hmm. is the threshold. And I think for me, at least this movie failed the six laugh test. I think maybe one, once or twice I, I chuckled and m maybe not even so much that the joke was funny, but more just like the incredulousness of how how bad a such certain situation got. Um, and so, yeah, I think this movie is honestly a waste of time. And uh, I, I, in terms of Netflix rom-coms, it's definitely down at the bottom of the heap. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more later on maybe about how far down at the bottom of the heap it is. Uh, but I, I was hoping for something sort of, you know, airy and charming to get me through this, uh, you know, this this tough time in, in our lives and in, in our country. Um, and can't say that this really got the job done. I, I had to watch it in two sittings. I, I do watch movies in, in multiple sittings, but when it's something like this, right, like a, a fluffy rom-com that's an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes long, I don't usually break that up by sittings uh, because I think it's pretty easy to consume all in one sitting, but this movie was not, it, it, it did take a toll on me somewhat and I had to stop about halfway in and finish it the next morning. So yeah, that, that should say a lot right there. But Scott, before we, uh, you know, pile on too much, do we want to say anything good about the cast of this movie? I mean, you, you, you've mentioned a, a couple of names here that are, are well known. I mean, Sam Claflin and Olivia Munn, um, Tim Key and Ashling B show up. They're, they're kind of comedians of some note over over in the uk um but other than that it's a largely you know faceless cast um did, did anyone stand out for you was there anyone who you thought oh they were they were kind of the the small spark whatever much whatever spark there was in this movie kind of came from them yeah it's kind of hard right because so much of this movie is about not only getting you to laugh out of discomfort due to the the cringy nature of it but also just brutally murdering jokes over and over again forever, like like far too overused. And I think some of these characters do provide a little bit of spark at different times in the film. Like I do think at certain points, Tim Key as Sydney does add a little bit of uh, hilarity to what's going on. Like, yes, e even that is still cringe, but, but, but knowing people like that who just won't shut up about themselves, some part of that at first was actually kind of funny. But when you're at like the 20th minute of seeing this same, like some iteration of the same joke being said, it just kind of kills that spark uh, that it started. It extinguishes, maybe is the right way to put it, extinguishes that spark. And I think that's the same for a, a lot of the other cast members. And I think Isling B is kind of the other way around where like, I didn't, I didn't, I just thought her character was super annoying at the beginning. And then at the end, the place that that character ends up with uh, Joel Fry's Brian is like, again, that's a little a little bit better than where it started, but still seems like just kind of like a shrug to me. Although I do think his best man speech is, was one of the parts where I laughed a little bit. Just someone who thinks he's saying like something super like woke and super like wise, and then coming off as this like completely self absorbed still, and and all of it just kind of came off as a little as as kind of funny to me. But all that's to say is that really there isn't too much even in the cast that sparks. One thing I will say as a as for a point of comparison, going back to 
Sydney's character. I think Tim Key is someone who plays that character really well. Like you, you look at Tim Key, and for one reason or another, whatever, this guy wearing a kilt at a freaking wedding when he's not even Scottish, like that that comes off as someone's like, okay, yeah, this character seems cast really well. The performance is really good. And then you look at someone like Sam Claflin, and you're just like, I don't believe for a second that Sam Claflin, when you look at him on screen, is this freaking awkward in real life. There's just like no way that you can look at Jack, who is Sam Claflin's character, and be, you know what? I, I get it. It's believable that this character is as awkward around like a woman as as this guy is, even though, especially when you compare that to the fact that his ex, Fruita Pinto, is like Amanda is there, and he doesn't seem to be particularly awkward around her. It's like just this Olivia Munn character, uh, Dina, who, who he's awkward around for whatever reason, unexplained whatsoever. I mean, it is Olivia Munn, let's be fair. <laughs> I mean, sure, like Aaron Rodgers, I'm sure, is still kicking himself. I don't know uh, what happened with that. But no, that's fair. But it's like, it's not like he's, it, like in any other scenario in the film, is he this awkward uh, around another woman, especially when you consider it, you know, it doesn't really seem like he was that way around his ex who he like, dated for two years, even though obviously that seems like a fairly toxic relationship. I just, th just think like he's pretty missed. Like it just seems like pretty miscast role. I mean, I understand why he's cast. Like you want someone attractive playing your lead in your rom-com, um, but it's just not believable. Like it just doesn't create a believable character. And I think that just kind of handicaps the ability to, perform in a way that makes makes the role makes you stand out in the role I mean, you talked about it one of the times similar to this that i think reminds me of, or this conversation reminds me of is talking about is it was it olivia cook in ready player one as someone who you just like don't believe at all that she's like i don't know as insecure as she comes off in, in the film about her physical appearance uh, and you see that it's like again these aren't the only two films in hollywood that have ever done that where they cast pretty attractive people in roles where the person is uh come like it's basically is meant to, you're meant to believe that this person doesn't believe they're attractive or isn't attractive or whatever it might be it, it just doesn't work uh for that reason so it's a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to what feels like good casting in the film yeah i mean i think sam claflin is going for hugh grant here right obviously i think totally. any yeah. any british male who is starring in a rom-com i think is is necessarily going to try to live up to you know maybe the the king of of that genre at least it, from, from the 90s and 2000s and especially when you think he, about the title alluding to like four weddings and a funeral and a little bit when you think about yeah. love wedding repeat mm -hmm. Yeah, he, but he he just doesn't have it. Like he he this character is just nothing. He's just a total blank slate. Like he he's boring. He just there's nothing interesting about this character. No reason um, to root for him other than the fact that he has to like take care of his sister so much. And I don't understand why Olivia Munn as like this really like first of all is Olivia Munn as we said also is like this really worldly like American journalist has done all of these crazy things like was kidnapped and stuff in in Afghanistan why is she interested in this guy like what is so special about him we don't we don't really get any taste for that whatsoever and why is she willing to like go so far like to the point where she walks in on him and brian in the bathroom like with brian shoving his fingers down down jack's throat and is still willing to overcome that and say, okay, yeah, maybe I, I want to be with this guy. Like, yeah. that well, seems then, to then be like falls that. asleep while she's telling him about his, yeah. her grandmother or mother dying or whatever. Yeah. I was like, obviously they're going to end up together at the end of the movie, but that must mean there's going to be another timeline reset, right? Where, where he doesn't do any of this stupid stuff. No, he does all of this stupid stuff. And then somehow in the end, he still convinces her that he's the one. And I just don't understand how that character, how the Olivia Munn character, um, you know, falls for him. And as far as her character goes, yes, she's very charming, but 
really her job is kind of this the straight man in the movie she just kind of walks around and watches everything going on and is just like what huh like just doing that kind of expression the whole time really and you know she gets accosted by uh, by sydney for a large parts of the movie she's just trapped in in these endless conversations with him and, and you're right that tim key like it's he's effective in the sense that you are just can barely even watch when he's talking to her in these scenes but like Again, I don't. I don't really see that as an asset to the movie. I mean, he's effective at being awkward, but it doesn't come off as funny to me. Um, like I said, I think it was funny at, at first, maybe because I just know yeah. I know people like that. But I mean, literally, not even halfway through the arc of this character, when you're getting so much of him, you're just like, I'm tired of this. This was funny at first, but it's not funny. If it was funny at all, it isn't funny anymore. Yeah, I know people like that, but it's more in the realm of they post on social media about themselves all the time. Um, but we won't go any further down that road. But yeah. but yeah, I mean, uh, for, further down the cast, like Frida Pinto, I like her, but her the, her, the running joke with her and her boyfriend yeah. the entire time, oh my gosh, that was maybe one of the worst parts of the movie was just, again, interminable. They beat the jokes to death. Um, him just like talking about what other women think about him, you know, in bed. And like, that was, that was the whole joke is him trying to be like, well, other women have, you know, said that I'm, I'm great or whatever. And, she, and her just kind of blowing him off. No. I did, uh, I did love how the like right ending for the film was them not ending up together. That that was, I found that kind of funny. Yeah. Feels right. Yeah. No, it, I, it did feel right, I guess, but I, I just didn't care at that point. So yeah. Oh, no, Unfortunately, it is. And, and yeah, and talking about uh, Joel Fry as well, the the best man speech made, I mean, the maid of honor speech made no sense to me because it was such a basic, generic, like cliche maid of honor speech. And yet somehow this like famous film director comes up to him at the end and is like, oh, you're, you're maid of honor speech, please let's have coffee tomorrow so I can put you in one of my movies. I'm like, why? Like, this is every maid of honor speech like that I've ever seen. Like it was just, there was nothing about it to make you be like, Oh, this guy, he's, he's going places. He didn't um, fall asleep during it. And therefore he deserves he, a part in a film. He didn't fall asleep during it. Thank God for that. And, and this is, and of course this is after he's already gone over to the guy and been like incredibly awkward. Right. Or, I guess that was in the yeah, first timeline, but timeline. Yeah. <laughs> timeline. yeah, but Anyway, because um, no, in this timeline, he'd given up on on act. He's like, ah, it doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, I just can't even be bothered to really keep up with with all this stuff. But yeah, the, it's a mixed bag in terms of the cast. And, and what good is there, I think, is just kind of spoiled by the movie. Um, but let's talk about I mean, we've already talked about sort of what the gimmick of the story is, which is that about two thirds into the movie, the movie kind of resets and says, well, what if some of these things didn't go as badly? And what if what if actually things went a little bit better and we can have a nice happy ending here? Um, yeah, because the, the whole gimmick is built around the seating arrangement. at the Right. Room, and it's arranged in a certain way. And Sam Claflin's character spikes someone's drink to basically, uh, well, I should say, be more to Eleanor Tomlinson's character. I, I forget. Haley is Haley, her name. Yeah. Or like, well, I shouldn't say X. I mean, I guess they never really dated, but this person who's like basically come to try to ruin her wedding um, yeah, with spikes her drink. But then the kids come in and rearrange the seats at that table. And the whole gimmick is around what if the kids rearrange the seats in a different way? And how many different combinations are there to sit eight people around a table? 
it's in the thousands. And I'm like, great, perfect, love it. Here we go. Yeah, I mean, and they try to universalize it, right? Like at, at every wedding or something, it, however you sit can change the course of how the wedding goes. I'm like, no, like, because at every wedding, people aren't putting sedatives in drinks, right? That's the only reason that things change, like when the seating arrangements oh, change. I'm not sure how many you've been to, but yeah, Brian take. Brian takes it the first time, and then and then Jack gets it the second time. But anyway, the the point is, or I mean, the, the, another thing I think since you brought it up there that I wanted to say is the the whole thing with with Haley and her ex, right? I I just thought that was so dumb because the whole the reveal, right, is that they have like been together two weeks before the wedding or whatever. Yeah. And Jack in the in the good timeline, Jack is able to convince him that um, that he, he shouldn't try go. to ruin the wedding. Yeah. That yeah. he should he should let her go, and so he gets up and he he's about to make the speech that he does in the first timeline and, and ruins the wedding, um, and instead he's just like you guys are going to be great together. Whatever. And I'm like, are we supposed to be? Are we supposed to feel good about this, right? Because she still like slept with him two him. weeks before yeah. the wedding. Two weeks before the wedding. Like, are we supposed to think, oh, their marriage is going to be fine now? She's crisis avoided. Um, so I just she thought loves that him, Scott. Their their marriage will yeah. be perfectly fine because she's in love with him. That left me with a weird taste in my mouth. But anyway, a, a bit of a sidetrack. But talking about the the timeline here, the timeline thing, right? And the fact that the seating arrangement seating arrangements change, as you said, different person gets the sedative and and things go differently based on that. In terms of like Groundhog Day, a uh, Groundhog Day type spin on this, you know, we talked about you, you mentioned some other movies there with the Groundhog Day spin, like Edge of Tomorrow and Happy Death Day. Did did this? do it for you or, or did you think this was just kind of a useless addition to the movie no this was a useless addition to the movie i i saw this and i was like oh this is how they're going to stretch this out for 40 more minutes when they did it at the hour mark and i was like oh boy i don't know if i need 40 more minutes of this i don't i don't need if i need the i don't know if i need the repeat in love wedding repeat because uh, they'd already beaten the jokes to death at that point and to give them another more opportunities to beat the same jokes more to death uh was a real disappointment yeah, because it's not like the characters really change that much, right? They, you know, you, you reset it, but like Sydney is still the same boring dude that he is until he comes to his realization at the end of the movie that he is that boring dude. Like Brian doesn't really change as a person. Rebecca doesn't really change. No, no one really like changes that much as a person. So yeah, you're right. You, in, in some respect, you're just seeing kind of the same stale jokes played out in a slightly different context. Um, yeah, with a different outcome ultimately for like the individual yeah. relationships. But I don't know why you just don't show the happy ending in the first, like don't even bother with like the disaster timeline. It, like it, it's all, it's like you said, it's all the yeah, same. Or, it's not like you're introducing anything new to the plot. Yeah. I mean, or alternatively to just lean into it more. Right. Because yeah. like, you know, these other movies, like, like we talked about edge of tomorrow, happy death day before I fall, all of these, which are, which are good movies. Like I enjoy all of these movies a lot. Um, they, you know, they're constantly repeating. It's all based around like when you die, the day resets or whatever. I'm not saying that there should have been deaths here, but maybe like a, a similar thing, like you know, when when Mark gets up on stage and um, and ruins the wedding or whatever, then we reset and he has to figure out how to do that better, or he just, basically he has to figure out how to balance all of these plates, and it takes him several tries to do so, right? And, and obviously, like here there's the reset that happens. And this is another element. It's like, nobody knows that there's a reset, right? It's, it's not like in, in edge of tomorrow, for example, where Tom Cruise is, you know, knows that he's going back in time and he has to fix things because he's seen what happens when the, the worst happens. Yeah. Um, which 
again, maybe that would have been a better direction for this movie to go. Like Jack sees the worst, he sees the worst timeline, right? The first time around. And then he has to spend several different times trying to fix things from going so badly. And maybe instead of drawing out that really bad timeline at the beginning, you, you shorten that to just the first uh, of many different timeline shifts in the movie. I think that could have been a little better, but again, it would, you would have had to have some rewrites in terms of the jokes as well. Um, yeah, you're right. I think they should have just leaned into the original timeline, have Roberto die. Cause doesn't, doesn't the first timeline end with her, with uh, Haley accidentally knocking him off of like a bridge or whatever off the balcony or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, there, there you go. The day resets every time he dies. But yeah, um, I think it was just a missed opportunity, right? Because the t it's it's right there in the title, right? Like, love, wedding, repeat. It's an element sort of in the trailer. It makes you think that this is going to be a big part of the movie. And then it's not. Um, so so that was, uh, again, another way in which the movie, I think, is a letdown. Yeah, rather than a mechanism, it's little, it's just a gimmick. Yeah, um, I, I guess the only other thing to talk about is the, the comedic elements of the movie and... Um, you know, you've said that maybe you chuckled a few times. Was there one sort of thread that made you laugh more than others, or was it just kind of scattershot? Yeah, I think any any time where basically there's just like I don't know, like almost like smash, like smash cut humor around where there's not an actual editing cut in the film, but just like all of a sudden you get this like outburst from someone that actually like makes sense why someone's like super upset and is really funny. Uh, the first time it happens is when Frida Pinto and Sam Claflin are sitting next to each other. I think it's in the first timeline. And they're, I can't remember what they're talking about. Oh, she talks about his like cufflinks or whatever. Yeah. And he's like, oh yeah, these are the only ones I have. That's why I'm wearing them. And then she's just like, well, you. Um, and that, I laughed at that. I thought that was pretty funny. And then again, at the very end of the movie, right when Olivia Munn and Sam Claflin are like about to kiss or whatever. And obviously this is a kind of a recurring okay, every time in, they yeah. get close to, to kissing, some random person comes up and like interrupts them. It happens at the very beginning of the film, like three years before the present timeline. And then at the end, rather than kind of allowing it to happen this time, he just like screams at this person to F off, uh, which I found quite funny. So it, it was stuff like that, I guess, that I found the funniest. Again, like a lot of the jokes, even I will say, like again, the first or second time they might've come up. I shouldn't say a lot. Some of the jokes, the first or second time, they come up. I found them funny. Like at first I found like some of the uh, like dick jokes uh, going on with Chaz. I thought like the first time or the, or the first two times I thought it was kind of funny that this guy's like, Oh, it's such a, such a stereotype of an insecure person. But again, by the end, they've just been beaten to death so much that they're not funny anymore. I'm very annoyed with them and I want them to just move on. Yeah. And, and I mean, the first time when they try to kiss her at the beginning of the movie and the guy comes in, Whew, the guy that comes in is is just a big cringe, and I mean, not again, not in a good way. I, I it was just woof from the very beginning. I, I figured we were in for a tough ride. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's once, why I texted you uh, when I got yeah. to that scene. I was like, oh my goodness. Once I saw the type of humor that this was going for, and, and so I, I mean, I, th I think that's important to to mention, like when we're. Yeah. being a little rough on the movie like if if you are into like cringe humor or like the, the kind of type of comedies which make you squirm a little bit then maybe you'll like this i mean i yeah. i personally think that even if you are into this movies these types of movies i think this movie still goes over the top with it yeah. but um I, I think i would give it at least give it a chance if you if you think the way that we're describing it is a little more encouraging to you than it is to, to us. But yeah. um, I mean, I definitely know people who would enjoy this type of humor more than me, but I do stand by like, like you were alluding to here. It's just by the end of the film, they've beaten every joke to death. It's just not yeah. funny anymore. It's not even well executed cringe humor in a lot of places, but um, 
Okay, Scott, last question, I guess. Where does this rank in terms of Netflix rom-coms? Obviously, I, I talked about sort of the upper tier there. You have Set It Up. You have Always Be My Maybe. You have uh, one that I love is Candy Jar, which I actually just rewatched today um, for like the third time. Um, yeah. Any others that you, you, you think are in the upper tier? Does this fall at the bottom? Because obviously we've seen some really bad ones too, like we talked about the last summer last year being an example. Not, not quite a rom-com, but kind of rom-com adjacent a little bit. Is this at the bottom is this you know in the in the bottom of the heap or is this like somewhere in the middle between those really good ones and um the last summer type films yeah i mean some people might might find it to be better and more in the middle than where i'm gonna place it but i'm definitely putting it in that lower tier i do think the last summer is worse i do think that is a worse movie although again rom-com wise it, it's kind of a tweener between rom-com and just some sort of like coming of age um like comedy, I don't even know right, the right way to describe it. It's some sort of mixture there, whereas this is kind of the you know straight down the pike rom com. I think with the rom coms, if you just looked at Netflix rom coms, I think that it's probably one of the definitely one of the lower tier ones. If you put it in the overall like Netflix films by like lower middle tier. I watched a lot of Netflix movies last year and some even this year too that are definitely worse than this movie. Uh, not most of them not being rom coms. I'm thinking things like uh, what the last thing he ever wanted or I can't remember the name of that movie this year was terrible. I mean, that movie was way worse than this one. I think that, you know, something, something like secret obsession last year, which is not a, you know, romantic comedy is way worse than this. Even uh, extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile is worse than mm -hmm. this. Um, but again, if you're just looking for rom-coms, I think you're going to be hard pressed to find something that's, that's too much worse than this, in my opinion. Yeah, I think this is right down there with the last summer for me. I, I honestly don't know which one I think is worse. I think there's probably some worse acting in the last summer than there is here. Yeah, um, that's true. But again, like in the last summer, there was at least one storyline where I was just like, okay, this is kind of okay. Um, but here, there's there's just not much to, to look back on and think, well, if they'd done this a little bit better, um, it's really just kind of all around a mess. But at the same time, like, I don't know if Netflix should stop making these movies because no. like they can't, they can't just make like, obviously they're not going to produce like Roma every single month or whatever. I think that there has to be some filler content in there. And like, I think Netflix is a good place. Like sometimes when you get onto a streaming service, like today when I watched candy jar, right? Like I wasn't looking to watch something super heavy. I, I didn't want to watch there will be blood, which is also on Netflix. Now I was just like, what's something that I can watch. That's just kind of fun. It's, 90 minutes it's 100 minutes it's a time killer and you know it does it, it won't be too much of a a chore or a demanding task to watch or anything like that and you know candy jar set it up i've, I've rewatched these movies not because there's like a ton of takeaway from them or they're like my favorite movies of all time or anything but because they do really like occupy that space really well i think they're they're great very you know fun rewatchable disposable yeah. um romantic comedies that you can that you can watch and i think that that's as, as important to a streaming service as you know the romas and the irishmans again because you're not going to be producing that all of the time and you need something to keep your viewers you know anchored to the streaming service 12 months a year yep. and you know there are different you know types of viewers as well like my mom is going to watch these types of movies way more than she's going to watch the Irishman. Um, no, that's totally true. I mean, this, so yeah. no one's going to subscribe to Netflix to watch love wedding repeat. You're going to subscribe to Netflix. I mean, if you go back in the day when Netflix is streaming service and original content was first launched, you're going to go, go subscribe to Netflix to watch something like house of cards, you know, less so now after everything happened with Kevin Spacey, but you know, you have your, you have your flagship comment, you have your 
you know, House of Cards, you have your The Irishman, Roma last year, Marriage Story this year as well. There's this flagship content that you subscribe to a streaming service for. Uh, and then the, you're absolutely right. You need the filler content to keep people there because if all you have is your flagship content, then people are going to leave. Like People are going to subscribe to your service for a month, watch everything that is the flagship content, and then they're going to leave. But if you are able to put out this sort of filler content, if that's the right way to describe it, this con content that will keep people uh, on your streaming service, something like Tiger King, like people are not subscribing to Netflix to watch Tiger King, but something like Tiger King got produced, got made, and it's now yeah. this like, social media phenomenon, and everyone who has Netflix is watching it. And that's the kind of content that, you know, you have to, you know, you, you, know, you, you, can't, you can't hit all the balls that you don't, you can't hit any of the balls you don't swing at. And so if you're not producing content like this, uh, then, then you're not going to find some winners in there that's going to also captivate your streaming audience. And, and I think Tiger King is a good example of a huge success. And Set It Up is an example of a movie that's a pretty good success. Sounds like Candy Jar is that way as well. I haven't seen Candy Jar, but it sounds like that's another movie that's a good example of that. And then you're going to have some duds as well. And I'll sit on you know our podcast and we talk about them and I'll rag on them. But I totally agree with what you're saying that uh, I'm not begrudging Netflix necessarily for making this content because it does satisfy a certain need. You know, this may be the equivalent of something like Always Be My Maybe last year, which we thought was better than this film, certainly. But uh, it, it some people might enjoy it more and will, I'm sure, enjoy it more than, than we have enjoyed this. And regardless, we still watched this film. We were still looking, I mean, to some, to, to a lesser extent than on average, probably for the most movies we cover on this podcast, we were still somewhat looking forward to this film because of Olivia Munn, you know, for whatever reason, like look like an interesting rom-com. And sometimes we, they do have these successes. And we didn't like it as much, but we still watched it. And that's the whole point. Like Netflix wants you to watch it. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that even even though we've, you know, we've seen some bad ones here, I actually watched another really bad one last week called Summer Night. But even though there have been a few bad ones recently and as bad as this film is, like I feel like their hit rate is still decent compared to like the rom-coms that major studios are putting out. I mean, stuff like what like the isn't it romantic and, and that those types of movies oh, yeah. i don't think are, i think are being very poorly received and i know um, i'm going to see those in movie theaters anymore because of netflix i mean yeah there's a reason why the lovebirds has been sold to netflix from paramount mm -hmm. so yeah that's that's kind of the the state of affairs on that i guess i mean i will continue to watch these types of movies i'm in the same boat as you but you know it wouldn't hurt if they made them a little bit better <laughs> um okay scott yeah. uh let's wrap things up for this movie What's your favorite scene or moment? Do you have one? I mean, you've, you've alluded to a couple, but. Yeah, I want one of those two that I talked about. Um, I hesitate to say that scene at the end that I was talking about just because I totally agree with your assessment that it's really weird that they end up together at the end of the film based on everything that's happened. And it makes you kind of question Olivia Munn's judgment, uh, or at least her character's judgment in the film. And so I'd probably go with the earlier uh, moment where you do have this conversation between Sam Claflin and Frida Pinto that kind of ends with her uh, telling him to go. Uh, F himself because he's like insulted her because he's only wearing her gift because he has no other choice but to wear her gift. Uh, that, that, that did get a genuine uh, laugh out of me. I think I chuckled one time and that was when um, when uh, Sydney and Olivia Munn's character originally start up their converse, their first conversation right before you yeah. really get the gist of what how bad this Sydney character is going to be and he, he says, didn't you get kidnapped or something? And she's like, yeah, I did. You know, it was horrible or something. And he's like, whoops. I was like, great, great reaction to someone getting kidnapped. Um, and, oh, yeah. And then he's just like, uh, then he gets like mad at her for continuing to talk to like, oh, for I talk now? Yeah. Well, I, and she says like, I, I went to Afghanistan 
was and like, he was like, your first problem. <laughs> yeah, that was the first mistake. I was like, okay. Um, so yeah, that that I guess was maybe the one silver lining in the whole movie. But let's put a score on it. Out of ten, what would you give LWR? LWR. L period W period R period. Yeah. Three point eight. Yeah, definitely worse than Live, Die, Repeat. However, this movie did not make me angry in the same way that, like, Black Christmas or Vice, like, talking about some of the, the worst movies from recent years. Um, so I will go a little bit higher with my score and give it a 1.7. I mean, it's, it's again, it's better than Black Christmas or Vice. So they, they can, I'm, I know that that was what, I know that that was the bar that they were aiming for with this movie. We just got to be better than Black Christmas. Um, yeah, it, and you succeeded, guys. That it, his movie would be compared to Vice. I think that he would have thought that would be a good thing. Yeah, a film that was nominated for however many Oscars. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't think it won any Oscars. Maybe it won makeup and hair. I'm not well, sure. I said nominated, but yeah, and it did win makeup and hair styling. But but yeah, not from this not from this wannabe critic. Um, so there you have it. That that's our discussion of Love Wedding Repeat. When we come back, uh, Scott, we'll talk about some more of the uh, coronavirus news, including new release dates for pretty much all of the big summer release uh, releases. That were, that were scheduled to come out this summer. And we'll also be breaking down uh, what, what you can find on the new streaming service, Quibi. But we'll be right back uh, to talk about those things. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, getting to the, a little bit of news now, Scott. Obviously, the first thing on everyone's mind is still the coronavirus and its impact on the global film market. Um, talking about the theater and from the theater aspect, um, the rumors are going around this week that AMC Theaters, the, the country's largest the, theater chain, um, may be filing for bankruptcy very soon, which would, would probably mean a lot of their smaller market theaters are going to be sold. Um, as part of the bankruptcy proceedings, which obviously is is very disappointing for for us to hear, um, and all the more reason that we hope this crisis um, ends sooner rather than later, so that um, you know this the same doesn't befall Regal or whatever what whatever other theater chains are out there. But regardless, uh, you know, summer movie wise. Pretty much everything has now been pushed, Scott, since since we last talked about, uh, since since we last did some news on the show. Um, the only movie which is kind of holding strong at the moment, well, there's a couple. There's Soul, right? The Pixar release um, is still holding at, I believe it's June release date. And then Tenet, which, and then Tenet which is Christopher Nolan's uh, new film, is July 27th. Is that right? July 17th. July 17th. Um, July 17th is still holding uh, at, at that release date. But I think the writing is kind of on the wall for both of these movies. Uh, Scott, you want to talk some more about some of the other uh, movies that have been pushed uh, since we we last talked about this, and, and Disney in particular. I know released a lot of where the their tentative release dates for these films for now. Yeah, so I think we had already talked about the Wonder Woman 1984 release date, which is slated currently for August 14th. I think uh, again, we at the time said that that was an optimistic release date probably. There's no reason not to be aggressive in this particular time, trying to be that first tentpole theater, or sorry, tentpole movie uh, releasing at sort of the start of the summer box office, maybe in August. Uh, and Wonder Woman 1984 is, is trying to lead that way. But for now, uh, you know, Disney did kind of have this huge batch of release date updates about a week 
I guess about a week and a half ago. It came out right after we decided to not send the newsletter uh, the previous week. We we're like, well, we had some some stuff to talk about if we had sent it, but it didn't matter at that point because it was already like half the way through on Friday and sent out the newsletter. It didn't matter. But the point is, is that they dated Milan for July 24th, so they were even picking a more aggressive date than Wonder Woman 1984 had. Obviously, slightly different movies, but female-led action films with uh, you know franchise power of Wonder Woman and Mulan. They they have some similar uh, at least undertones, if not overtones, mm-hmm. to them. But trying to lead the way out the door there on July 24th. But I think the surprising thing for me to note is that they still had Soul dated at June 19th on the calendar. That is Pixar's second new release of 2020. I would be floored if movie theaters were open for that. And if movie theaters were open, that people would go to that. I mean, I know that, Scott, that you were talking about how people want to get out of the house, want to go to see a movie like that. But I would be surprised if people were feeling that brave in mass to go out to see a movie that early on, on June 19th. I'm not saying that it would tank, although I think that it would, uh, but it definitely would not do as well as it would have normally uh, in the climate. I mean, we were talking about how Onward was an underperformance for Pixar, even though that kind of came out after some things had kind of started with coronavirus. But I think that Soul would be an even bigger disappointment. And I don't think that Disney wants that. I don't think Pixar movies are the type of movies that you can just put out to pasture like that because they are such money-making uh, machines usually. Again, Onward maybe in, in a, a weird exception to that. But Toy Story 4 last year made over a billion dollars. Again, that's a franchise that's well known that people, you know, love Woody, Buzz, and, and the whole gang and want to see the end of their uh, stories and their arcs. And Soul is not that Soul's new IP, but still, you'd expect it to do in the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, over the box office. Which I don't think that it would do in June. But anyway, that that aside, I think some, they also announced new release dates for Black Widow and several other films. Black Widow moving out of the May 1st slot that was coming up here in the next few weeks, and they moved it to the Eternals spot in November, November 6th. And that essentially set off this chain reaction of pushing every phase four and phase five Marvel movie that had been dated back. So that means the Eternals would move to Shang-Chi's spot in February of next year, the Valentine's Day weekend slot. Shang-Chi moves to May, which is where Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was at. And then Doctor Strange moves to November 5th and so on and so forth. Thor Love and Thunder goes to Valentine's Day in 2022 and what did come along with this is that we did see that black panther 2 still sits at may 8th 2022 which is where it was originally dated but the movie that had been slated to come out in july of that year or or sorry the movie that had slated to come out that valentine's day weekend originally which hadn't been named yet it hadn't been announced what that movie was moved back to the summer so that fourth of july day weekend release date that we often see some marvel movies sit like spider-man uh, Far From Home did. Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yeah. Ant-Man and the Wasp did the year before. Um, that is going to be Captain Marvel 2. So they announced that alongside all this Captain Marvel 2 sequel, which we knew was in the works, uh, has officially been dated there and July 8th, 2022 for now. They also pushed back Indiana Jones 5, the eagerly anticipated, I say that with some slight uh, sense of sarcasm in my voice, uh, back another year. So originally it was going to be the summer of 2021. Now it's the summer of 2022. I think the end of August is where they've dated that. So that's kind of the big announcements from Disney. Uh, technically a Disney film that they're not necessarily immediately thought of as that because it is coming from Searchlight Pictures, which is a subsidiary of Disney. Uh, they did also push back the French Dispatch from a July release date to an October release date. They also pushed back the Ryan Reynolds comedy Free Guy to Christmas time, uh, a movie that I think had maybe been scheduled for like an August release date, a late summer release date for that film. 
uh, it got pushed back to, to Christmas time. Other than that, Sony also made some announcements. Sony, uh, I guess most related to what we were just talking about with the Marvel movies, Spider-Man 3 is still set right now for July of 2021. So if you were thinking about all those Marvel movies, it that film hasn't moved still. I know that's technically a Sony movie, although it is in the MCU. Uh, that, that movie is still anchored to July 16th, 2021. So again, a, a July release date for Spider-Man there. And that has not moved for now. Uh, it was scheduled to start filming, I think, in a couple months. We'll see if, if that goes through. If that doesn't go through, then that might get pushed back. And I don't know what that would mean for Captain Marvel 2, which is currently slated for that July spot. And obviously, you wouldn't see Spider-Man 3 and Captain Marvel 2 uh, coming out in, you know, next, you know, in, within a couple weeks of each other. Some, some more shifting would be there. Uh, but anyway, so other Sony movies that also have been pushed, uh, Uncharted has been pushed back to October of 2021. You're kidding. Yeah, I know, right? Oh, I, I also forgot another perennial uh, delayed movie. The New Mutants has has been left without a release date. Uh, that along with The Woman in the Window, which is another Disney movie through Fox Arm. I can't remember I, think, I can't remember which studio at Fox that was in, but that movie doesn't have a release date either. Uh, but anyway, going back to the Sony movies. So Uncharted has been pushed back to like October 2021. Uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife has been pushed back to March of next year. Rather, That was originally going to come out around 4th of July this year. Now mm-hmm. that's in March. Another uh, movie that was coming out in July of this year, Morbius from Sony, the the, the vampire movie uh, superhero film in the Spider-Man universe starring uh, Jared Leto is now been pushed back to, I believe, March of next year as well. So you're seeing all these movies kind of shift into early part of next year. I think the only other one that's not Sony or Disney that did get an announcement update is Top Gun Maverick. That was obviously coming out uh, within the next couple of months in June. That's been pushed back to Christmas time. So basically the month of December is absolutely wild uh, this year. A couple of their Paramount releases, so Top Gun Maverick is a Paramount release. Two more to get through here. I know you might have fallen asleep by now if you're listening to this, but two more that did get uh, that did get changed in release dates officially. A Quiet Place Part Two, which just missed out on getting released in theaters before coronavirus really took uh, a full grip on the country. That's now happening in uh, early September, so kind of like the It time period that uh, you know It and It Chapter Two kind of tried to own September and, and be the biggest September releases. Well, A Quiet Place Part 2 is going to try to displace that with a September 4th release date. And then Candyman, I can't remember which studio this is a part of, but Candyman was another film coming out in early June, uh, a horror remake starring Yahya Abdul-Mateen II. That is going to now be coming out in uh, October, or no, late September, September 25th. And Halloween Kills, I believe is the name Mm -hmm. of the film. Well, that's still coming out in October. So so we've got some horror fare coming up in late September, October uh, to fill the void at Chapter 2, although that movie wasn't particularly scary last year. So, again, the release calendar is kind of taking shape for now. We'll see if some of these movies get pushed again and then what that would mean as a ripple effect. Like I said, it's very possible. Mulan, Wonder Woman 1984, Tenet, and uh, Soul still get moved. And those are all movies that a lot of other studios are going to want to get out of the way of because... Uh, those are are really. I, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say Soul is a is a tentpole franchise movie because because it's a new IP, but it's still a movie that would attract a lot of people to the box office and that some other movies we want to avoid. Yeah, I mean, he, he, here's what I what I think about all this is that if everything right now holds at its release date, with maybe a couple of things getting pushed, like you know Soul and Tenet, for example. 2021 is going to be insane. Like, it's basically going to be summer movie season for, like, 
eight eight months of the year like st yeah. starting with february pretty much and going like through august it's going to be just like non-stop big studio franchise type movies uh, you know the tentpole films like we we were saying there and so you know as disappointing as it is maybe to have some of these held over what it means is that you know, we may get all of them in this incredible, you know, eight months span at the same time, that could also be sensory overload by, by the time we, you know, July rolls around and I, I don't know, we're getting, uh, you know, the third Marvel movie or something, we're getting the Eternals or Shang-Chi, wh whichever one is coming out in that sort of late summer. And in 2021, we might, we might just be like enough, like, please waving the white flag. Can we just yeah, get like an 20 can we get an A24 movie up in here or something, you know? Um, and, you know, th those movies will still be coming out as well. But still, yeah. um, it, it, it could be a really crazy time for theaters in 2021 if everything is able to stabilize and hold its 2021 re release dates. And maybe, you know, maybe it means that down the line, AMC can make a little bit of a comeback, can add some more theaters back. Uh, once they, you know, take in some revenue from uh, all of these big movies that are going to be coming out next year. Though, I, I mean, I agree. As far as Soul goes, like, I don't think that if Soul came out in June, if, if it was okay to go out by June 17th, I don't know. Because that is, like, the target audience there is families, right? Like, I don't know that many people are going to go out to see the movie like, to, to your point, I think, because I think parents and families are going to be the type of people who are going to be extra cautious about going out, even after it's supposedly okay to go, to go back out again. Whereas, you know, something like tenant, right? If tenant stays at July 17th and, um, and it's fine to go back out by July 17th, I'm not saying that the movie's going to make the money that it should, that it, it could have made. And you know, they, I think they that's wanted the to right? Um, but I think that the target audience for, for Tenet, which is like us, right? Like millennials, mostly people who are familiar with Christopher Nolan's films um, and, and have followed his career for a while now, um, I think are, are going to be, you know, m more aggressive about going out to the theaters, even if it's just been a week or two since the quarantine has ended. That's just my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I hope that it's something we get to talk about on the podcast because that means we get to review Tenet on July 17th. But I'm, you know, I'm, I'm curious about it. I, I just, I'm not convinced that things are just going to go back to normal. I, yeah, I think Tenet does appeal more to the type of audience that would go, is, is a little bit maybe more eager to go back out and a little bit more comfortable going back out. But I don't think it's a matter of will it, will it make, you know, will it make the same amount of money? It's like how much will it have lost with everything that's happened? Like how much will the global box office, even after the immediate threat of coronavirus goes away, like how much of that in a year's time will, will have been lost? Like, are we talking 50%? Are we talking 40%, 25%? Uh, and then what movies are most effective? Is it your big box office uh, movies? Is it your blockbusters? Or is it your independent films that suffer the most? I think these are all really interesting questions that we can't answer yet, but it's things that I'm thinking about. Not again, maybe Tenet's not the one that's gonna suffer the most from it, but movies are going to suffer at some point, whether it be the big movies or the smaller ones. Uh, maybe that means more independent movies are just going to be going straight to streaming services and you have to find that avenue to distribute them uh, to, to really get a, an audience and get eyes on them and get them funded. But uh, we'll, we'll see what gets hit the hardest.
Yeah, a lot of questions still to be answered. Uh, shifting directions a little bit, Scott, uh, this week in our newsletter, and if you're not subscribed to the newsletter, you should be, and you can subscribe uh, in the link in the description of this episode. Uh, but this week in my weekly article, I wrote about the new streaming service, Quibi. This is the uh, new mobile-only streaming service that had uh, a very large budget. A lot of money was put into this um endeavor and sort of the hook in addition to being mobile only uh, of quibi is that uh all of the episodes of their their programming um are 10 minutes or less that's where the name quibi comes from from quick bites um is is what it is short for um and they they basically their program is kind of in some different categories you have some more like news oriented programs like the bbc has a program on there rotten tomatoes has like an entertainment news show that they've been doing um you have some like lifestyle type stuff right like there's a show called thanks a million where celebrities are kind of doing philanthropy stuff you also have like random out there game shows um like there's this one that's really dumb where chefs get hit in the face with food and then have to like cook with the dish mantle yes hosted by titus burgess uh, and there's a, there's like this dating one that's also really weird um and th but then the sort of their their premium content their like prestige content is um what is known as movies and chapters and they are basically just like two to two and a half hour series um again spread out over the course of these 10 minute or less episodes which are being released every weekday uh so every weekday you are getting a new uh, snippet of the story um and the the app launched this past week with about 50 different uh programs i believe that you could watch again spread across all of those different genres um and i think 20 25 shows that were scripted content that aren't like yeah new things like that and, and they are rolling out new content throughout the month so each week there's going to be i think five five to ten new new shows and stuff like that i, I believe it's a, it's a lot yeah um you know a tech, really hoping obviously to to hook viewers from the beginning because there is this 90 day free trial um i don't know if you can get it anymore i, I think that may have just been before the app launched yeah um, I but Although they for, may have for, extended it with coronavirus, I'm not sure. I'll double check. Maybe I I don't know. Um, I don't think they would they would want to be too particular about that at that at this time. I think they probably want as many as they can get in the free trial. I think will get some people in there. That's yeah, honestly. I do want to go back and talk about coronavirus and how it affects Quibi, but yeah, keep going. Sure. Um, that that is um, that is one of the reasons that I got my foot in the door because when I heard about this concept, I was like, whatever, I don't really need another streaming service. But looking at what this streaming service had to offer and um, and the fact that you get this 90 day free trial, it's a time like, you know, coronavirus where we're watching a lot of stuff. There's not much to do, but but watch this type of stuff and just being the type of person that I am where I don't binge watch things. I have trouble holding attention on like an hour long episodes of like an hour long HBO show. That's really dense, you know, like, like Watchmen or something, right? Like I watched all of Watchmen, but like, if I sit down and watch a full episode, you know, one day I'm done for the day. Like that, that's kind of like putting me out. I can't just sit there and watch three episodes or something in a row of Watchmen because it is so heavy. And just because my, my attention span, I guess, isn't quite, focus enough to where I can, I can, because like when I watch something like Watchmen, I, I, I'm i like, I'm like, I know this is really good. I am really enjoying it. And so I want to be able to devote the attention that it deserves, um, you know, when I watch it and I just can't always do that if I'm binge watching it. So the point is, this is the type of thing which 
it caters well to someone like me and caters well to millennials in general, I think, who are on the move a lot, who are trying to absorb as much content as possible. I think that is really the the strength of Quibi is that you can absorb a lot of content in not a lot of time. And that is going to appeal to a lot of people. But some of the programs um, which I have, well, I've, I've watched about seven or eight different things, sampled um, seven or eight different things, but the three sort of big scripted series so far have been um, Most Dangerous Game, which is this uh, action thriller type series with uh, Liam Hemsworth and Christoph Waltz, um, Survive, which is a survival thriller uh, with Sophie Turner and Corey Hawkins, and then the show When the Streetlights Go On, which is sort of this coming of age, small town, murder mystery type thing. Um, that has a few notable faces, Queen Latifah, Tony Hale, but again, it's, it's mostly centered around sort of uh, some, some fairly unknown uh, teen actors. And I am enjoying all of these to different degrees. I think that some of them are making better use maybe of the format than, yeah. than others. Like I think Most Dangerous Game, for example, um, took a long time to get going. I think, it, you know, when, when you when you have the the fact that, you know, there are so many episodes in these series because they're they're so short. Um, and obviously we know what the hook of, of, of Most Dangerous Game is, right? People are hunting each other for money. You know, you get mo more money the, the amount of time you stay alive. Um, and it just takes four or five episodes before you really like get into the hunt, right? Like there's, there's a lot of winding up uh, that has to be done. Whereas something like Survive, and even when the streetlights go on to some extent, um, I think really takes advantage of the small running time to say, okay, we're going to, you know, pack a lot into this uh, small running time, and then we're going to leave you with a little cliffhanger at the end to make you come back tomorrow for the next episode. Um, and I think that's making pretty good use of Quibi. But Scott, I know you've been watching some of this stuff as well. What stands out to you uh, among the programming that Quibi has put out so far? Yeah, I've been, so I haven't watched Survive, but I have watched um, all of the episodes that have aired to date of Most Dangerous Game and When the Streetlights Go On. I've been watching some of the Daily News bites. Like I've, if I go on a walk, I'll like put on the Daily News shows and like put it in my pocket and basically listen to it like a podcast essentially. Um, and, and I've enjoyed some of those, although again, like they feel pretty replaceable with whatever like news podcast that you would normally listen to or any news that you consume in any other method. Uh, maybe it's one of those things that it's a nice to have that no one will subscribe to Quibi for, but they'll keep you on the platform. We kind of kind of like what we were talking about with Netflix earlier. Maybe the daily news shows will keep you there, uh, whether it's the Rotten Tomatoes one, whether it's the BBC or the NBC News, whatever it might be. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm really enjoying when the streetlights go on. I think Most Dangerous Game is just like one of those shows that maybe it would be better if you could just watch the full movie. Maybe it'd be better if this was a TV show that you could watch on on a Netflix or or HBO or whatever it might be. Maybe the format would be better there because I do agree with you that the format doesn't serve this as well because even though it takes, yes, I agree, it takes a long time to get going and that's frustrating, but even once it gets going, it feels like seven or eight minutes, which is most of the length of the episodes. I, I haven't seen an episode get to 10 minutes in length yet, it feels like, but seven or eight minutes, it's just like, as soon as you feel like you get into it and it gets going, it stops again. And yeah. yes, it's great that they're releasing episodes every day and that keeps you coming back every single day, but for the type of format that a thrill, like a thriller is, like a thriller like Most Dangerous Game, an action thriller, you it, you need to be consuming more than seven minutes of that project, especially when the project is 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 a movie, right? Like ultimately, this is this is a movie that you're watching, and so it doesn't really work for me very well. But I thought when the streetlights go on works really well. I agree with that. I think that's probably 
the, my favorite thing that I've watched on the platform. I think there are a few things that have yet to come out on the platform or that, or that and that I want to watch that mm-hmm. has already released but haven't watched yet that are also really good, um, that I've heard really good things about and want to watch. But when the street lights go on is probably the standout for me. Uh, yes, they don't really have uh, the, I guess, the most robust cast list uh, for the main roles necessarily, but I think that they do well enough. The story is interesting and it's working for me. I don't know how many full episodes it'll end up being. I think seven have released so far. If it is going to hit the two hour mark, then it's probably going to be like what, 20, basically like anywhere from like 18, 17 to 20 episodes, depends on how long yeah. that, the movie actually is. But I'm enjoying it. And again, it's making use of the format really well. There are a couple other shows that have caught my eye that I haven't been able to watch yet that you haven't mentioned are actually in the docuseries realm. Uh, I'm not super interested in a show like I Promise, but that's the LeBron James uh, docuseries about uh, him, his philanthropy in the Cleveland community. And I've heard that it, that is a great documentary. It feels weird that that's on Quibi based on like how good of a documentary and that is and, and how like powerful it is as a statement of giving back to your community. It's like weird that that's broken up into seven minute chunks on Quibi is what I've heard, but it is one that I want to check out. I also want to check out Shape of Pasta just from like a food perspective. I think that's a cool, interesting cooking show again, kind of diversity of content coming through there. But then the other major one that really, I think in, it piques my interest. That's a docuseries. That's kind of more up my alley and uh, true crime related is a docuseries called run this city. Scott, I'd actually recommend that you check it out. I don't know if you've, heard about this one or, or I have heard about it yeah yeah no so it's a, it's a really interesting story about uh, a mayor or I think I think it's a mayor and basically yeah, criminal so. activity that this mayor has committed over the course of his career and I forget the town that it's based in but it's a true story it looks super interesting I definitely want to check that out as well um and then there's obviously some more I was talking about so that series that have come out that I haven't checked out yet that I want to then a couple other series that haven't yet come out that I think are really interesting I think a couple of them uh, so I know that there is a fugitive remake, although I'm not, again, I don't know if they're going to beat Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. They're not. They're not. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Uh, but I'm, I'm very interested in that one. I'm interested in, uh, I forget the sky help me out here. It's, it's the one that we were talking about the other day. Yeah. The stranger, which is Venus yeah. sued who created the, the killing and it, Micah Monroe is playing this like Uber driver who, who goes on a, a very, a ride that's um, that spirals out of control when this mysterious dude gets into her her car. Yeah, that one I'm I'm very much looking forward to. Yeah, so so there's a couple of shows like that that haven't yet come out yet that seem quite interesting. There's also a couple of comedies that I saw uh, that are on the on a slate to come out that I was like, oh, I'll probably watch like a couple episodes of that just to see what it's like. There's a remake of How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days, which is the Matthew McConaughey. Is it Kate Hudson? I can't remember who. Yeah. Which one is that? Kate Hudson. Yeah, yeah. yeah Kate Hudson. Um, the remake of that, that's that's going to be coming out, which is worth a worth a look. And then, you know, co- also another one called Code 8, Code 8, which is an action sci-fi drama film that I think is starring Stephen Amell and his brother. Stephen Amell is most famous for playing the Green Arrow in the CW uh, DC Universe show Arrow and kind of starting what has been known as the Arrowverse. I think he was great in that role as Oliver Queen and the green arrow and I'm, I'm very interested in uh what this show looks like because this was originally a short film that then got optioned by a studio and then sold um and sold to quibi and it's going to be released that way so things here and there that i'm very intrigued in, in checking out sky anything you want to say further about that because there's i do want to go back at the end of this and talk about the coronavirus's effect on, on quibi 
Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say, like, I think another... I agree with what you have to say about Most Dangerous Game being, like, you know, a little protracted for <laughs> what it's trying to do. Um, but I think the upside, again, this is another one of the upsides of the app, is, like, I would not watch the show, probably, if it was on TV. And it does feel to me like something that would be on network TV, right, and probably make it one season, and then that would be it. Um, th that's the kind of feel I get from Most Dangerous Game. Maybe with, you know, the added prestige of having those two pretty well-known actors. Yeah, Liam Hemsworth is not very good in this, though, at least so far. He's Yeah, he's, he's yeah. fine. But, um, but, but again, the upside, I think, of the app is when you're only getting eight, seven or eight minutes a day, I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll spend seven minutes watching this just to find out what happens next. I mean, it's not the greatest thing ever. It's not the Godfather, but like it's, it's seven minutes. It's only seven minutes. It's not taking up that much of my day to find out what happens in the story next. And so that is an upside. I think stuff that you wouldn't normally watch or, you know, you wouldn't normally continue watching. You will just because it's yeah. so little of a, of a commitment. But um, as far as the impact on in, in light of the coronavirus stuff, what did you want to say about that? Yeah, because I think that this this ultimately had two target audiences, and, and there may be some overlap in them as well. I think the one that you laid out is perfect sense, like targeting millennials, people who are watching Instagram videos and or watching YouTube, things like that. TikTok. I mean, yeah, TikTok, et cetera, th things like that. I think you know this content is for people who are used to consuming content on their phone and in relatively shorter amounts of time than your average TV show and movie allows for, right? Like, sure, you could watch, I guess, like 10 minutes of a Netflix movie and just keep coming back to it and back to it. Uh, but this content is curated for you that way, right? And I think that that is one of the appealing parts uh, for, for millennials because I, I think it's almost fair to say that the main competitor for Quibi is YouTube, not another streaming service. Yeah. And I think that is an interesting uh, thing there because obviously YouTube is all about kind of user-created content. Yeah, they have a couple like Cobra Kai. They have a couple original shows. But most of YouTube is, is just videos that are being created by the community. And Quibi is obviously not like that. So Quibi is some sort of, hybrid of YouTube and and a, stream, and a more traditional streaming service. Whereas there's also this second, I think, audience of people that, again, there may be some overlap here, but people who are going, like you know, working professionals or college students, whatever it might be, who have, you know, five to 10 minutes of time to burn if they're walking to work or on the train, uh, less so if you're driving to work, you shouldn't be watching Quibi in the car while you're driving to work. Uh, but basically like you have, you know, a handful of minutes between classes if you're a college student, whatever it might be. And so you're gonna burn uh, time that way and watch Quibi rather than scrolling through Twitter or scrolling through TikTok or Instagram, whatever it might be. And, you know, the fact that coronavirus has taken its toll on the U.S. economy in the way that it has, keeping people at home, working from home, and also just people being unemployed, uh, as well as, you know, shutting down classes, things like that, shutting down colleges. I think that that has really hurt some of their, um, you know, value that they could bring and in, in their you know their pitch their pitch to people like hey you should you should download Quibi and you should use Quibi because you know you you should watch a video uh, like a, a you know professionally created content video this movie in in parts or in movie in chapters whatever they call it and you should watch that while you're walking to work or while you're riding the train uh, to work in, in the morning on the transit and that 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 whole value proposition doesn't exist right now and may not exist for a really long time and I wonder if the lack of attention that some people have been noting that Quibi isn't getting, although some of the comparisons are absolutely absurd from some of the trade magazines saying like, Oh, Disney plus has like more attention than Quibi did at launch. I'm like, well, yeah. It's yeah. Like people <laughs> it's, don't even know what Quibi is yet. Yeah. Right. It, it takes, it takes a lot for a new IP from, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberger who 
people, some people may recognize that name just because he's obviously a big uh, film executive, but most people aren't. Most people aren't going to recognize that. But if you say, oh, Disney's launching a new streaming service versus, oh, Jeffrey Katzenberg is, is launching a new streaming service. People are going to pay attention to things differently there. It's a, it's a dumb comparison to make to, oh, this, this, this streaming service is going to be successful or unsuccessful based on how it does, rel how it's, what its Twitter, Twitter mentions are relative to Disney+. Plus. It's just kind of an absurd take that I saw from Variety or I can't remember which trade it was. Uh, anyway, I think that one, some of the compelling parts of this streaming service are currently kind of just in stasis on hold. And I wonder if that's kind of hurting its launch as well. Yeah, I mean, don't don't seek out too much about this thing online, honestly, because there are just a lot of terrible takes out there, to be honest, from people who just yeah. didn't, didn't, they made up their minds right before Quibi was ever even launched. They made up their minds that they were going to, number one, either be morally opposed to it because it, a lot of money went into it, which is apparently wrong, and or two, you know, to just get their jokes in right about the fact that it's it's short content it's called quibi which is short for quick bites um and it's just really of no interest to them beyond get, getting their cheap jokes in on twitter so i, I would just a lot stay of away from, written before uh before the streaming service even came out right um which which is a shame right because those types of things do do affect the way that people view the streaming service and so it's almost like a hit job right that that all, all of these critics are coming out and saying this is a joke without really giving it much of a chance and there's going to be people out there who are going to believe him and so before this this service can ever really get its legs it it might it might be gone but um last question i guess would love Re wedding repeat have been better as a quibi series no I don't think so either. Um, yeah, uh, and so so overall, I mean, obviously, you can tell we're a little bit more positive on this than um, th than a lot of critics out there are at least more willing to give it a chance. Again, and so that that is what I think you should do. I think you should give it a chance. It's only four ninety nine a month right now, especially during this first month. Right, like try it out for this first month when they're going to be releasing a lot of new content and. Yep. If you think you're going to like it, then then keep going with it. Obviously, there's a lot of streaming services out there, so not everyone can can sign up for everything. But I think it is worth a chance because they are trying to do something different. This mm. is all, for the most part, this is all original content. Um, and and I mean, I think that there's some interesting creators out there who are going to try to to make a name for themselves on this new format. So give it a chance. Yeah, and they're doing. And one of the cool things about Quibi that there's no real space where this conversation would ever happen. In, wider media is that they're allowing all their film creators, their their um, their directors, their writers, their their IP own to own their IP. Like no no film studio in Hollywood lets lets a creator own their IP. Let's you know Greta Gerwig own well it's Little Women, so that's a bad that, that's a bad example. But you know let's Christopher Nolan own his IP. Like Warner Brothers uh, at the end of the day, Warner Brothers owns Tenet uh, when when all is said and done. Um, not Chris Nolan. And if Chris Nolan made Tenet for Quibi, he would own the IP. And I think that's a really interesting thing to allow create creators to own their IP. Indeed. Uh, all right, Scott, that should just about do it for this episode of Some Like It. Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter? You can find me at, at shelton2013. And if you're on the fence about whether to spend $4.99 this month on Quibi, I would say maybe check out our podcast Patreon page where you could donate that $5 for the next month because uh, that would be a potentially good thing because you never know. We're creating great content over here for you every single week. Less less content than Quibi, but still worthwhile. 
Yeah, we're creating content. I don't know if it's great or not. It will let you decide that. But yeah, you could check out our Patreon uh, at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Even if you can't support us over there, uh, you can still support us by like, liking, rating, reviewing, subscribing, telling a friend, do, do all of the things that you do about our podcast. Um, and we hope you'll be back for our next episode and on which we will likely be reviewing the new Amazon film, Blow the Man Down. Uh, until then, wash your hands. I'm Scott Harvey for Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.